And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Janet Napolitano is one of the most impactful public figures I know. She was uh, elected Attorney General of Arizona and twice elected governor of Arizona, a state not easy for Democrats, elected by a landslide in her second term because she proved herself to be a pragmatic, thoughtful uh, leader who could reach across uh, party lines. She came to Washington as Secretary of Homeland Security in the Obama administration and dealt with everything from terrorism to immigration to natural disasters, and is currently the president of the University of California system, a, the largest state public university system in the country. She's also just written a new book called How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. I sat down with her in Chicago recently to talk about all of this and her extraordinary career. Janet Napolitano, it is such a Pleasure to see you again. It's good to see you, David. Been through a lot uh, <laughs> indeed. Uh, together. Um, you know, I want to talk about your new book, uh, but I, uh, before we get there, I want to talk about you yeah. and uh, your journey uh, through life and through politics. Um, you're a New Yorker by birth, by not birth, by raising, but you didn't. You weren't raised there. Um, your dad was the son of an Italian immigrant. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your family. So uh, uh, my dad was, as you said, the son of Italian Im- immigrants, and uh, he was raised in California. Uh, my mother came from hardy Midwestern stock and was raised in St. Louis, um, uh, they met when my dad was uh, going to St. Louis U Med School, and uh, mom was working there in the lab. Uh, they moved to New York. Dad had a postdoc at Cornell Medical School, so I was born in Manhattan. Uh, uh, we spent uh, a few years in Pittsburgh, and then we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico when I was six years old. So I really view myself uh, as a New Mexican by uh, but you didn't uh, say that heritage. in Arizona. And I didn't say that in Arizona. Um, uh, I just to briefly kind of uh, go through. Um, uh, I went to college in California. Before to, before we get yeah. there, um, because of the turn that your career took, I thought it was um, noteworthy that somewhere along the line you were moved by the and it seems timely the Watergate hearings. Yeah. And some of the women who played so prominently in those hearings. Absolutely. Uh, I was mesmerized by them. And and this was, you know, the Watergate hearings um, was when it was, you know, three networks and PBS was all that was on television. And uh, they broadcast the hearings live. And uh, I remember just sitting in front of our black and white TV uh, watching, and there were such impressive members uh, on, on the House side. You had Barbara Jordan and Elizabeth Holtzman, and, you know, something just kind of clicked on, like, you know, um, uh, boy, that's a that's a really good, you know, a key role, and, you know, they were, you know, they were just um, uh, exciting in, 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 a, in their own ways. Um, and the fact that they were women resonated yeah. with you. Would you not have seen yourself in that role if they had not been? Uh, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, uh, this was in the early 70s, and there weren't very many women uh, in political office at the time. So, uh, 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 yeah, I think you, you could look on them as early role models. Um, uh, and the Watergate hearings themselves as kind of turning me on to the whole notion of politics and government um, mm-hmm. and, and how important they are to our country. You, you went to uh, Santa Clara University, uh, and ultimately, you uh, you did a little stint in Washington. Yeah, I did. It's the Senate kind of Budget Committee on the Republican staff. Yeah, uh, um, I got the job through Senator Pete Domenici, um, who was an old family friend. Uh, 
And so I like to joke that it's the Republicans who taught me how to round to the nearest hundred million dollars. But there's no way better to uh, see government than to actually go through the budget and uh, to see where the money flows. Um, So I had a a really good experience and then headed off to law school. Yeah. Did you know – were you – did you know this was an interregnum that you were headed to law school? I knew I was headed to graduate school of some sort. I kind of decided while I was on the Hill, you know, I looked around and and uh, I looked at who was heading all the committee staffs and who, who were actually the electeds. And so many of them had law degrees that I thought uh, I ought to pick one up. So I did. And you and then headed to Arizona. I did. I got a I wanted to head back west uh, and I applied for uh, clerkships on the Ninth Circuit, which is the federal court of appeals that covers the far western states, yes. and uh, got a clerkship with Judge Mary Schroeder. Um, her chambers are actually in Phoenix, um, and I remember so distinctly loading everything I owned and fit into this kind of two-door hatchback, five-on-the-floor Honda Accord. It was my first car, driving across the country getting to Phoenix late on an August afternoon. You could see the heat waves coming up from the valley. But it's dry heat, right? Oh, it's dry heat. But, you know, (laughs) I just said, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I'm only going to be here for a year. Well, (laughs) So when you uh, got assigned, when you got this clerkship, did you get to choose the judge you were applying to or did you apply to the Ninth Circuit and— I don't know how that works, having so you, barely gotten through college. Uh, no, so you apply to judges. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just went through the judges' almanac and identified judges who were um, in the Ninth Circuit. And, and, uh, and did, did the fact that she was a woman uh, appeal to you? Uh, not, you know, not, I wasn't uh, uh, applying to her because she was a woman. Uh, uh, but she obviously became a great mentor uh, and ha- and remains a good friend and mentor. You uh, you went into private practice after that, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the things that is striking about it is that one of your very uh, illustrious clients was Anita Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Tell so, me how that came about. So the senior partner at my law firm was a man named John Frank. Um, he'd been a professor of law at Yale, had moved to Arizona because he had terrible asthma. Uh, And he was an expert on Supreme Court nominations. He'd been involved in uh, uh, Hainsworth. He was involved in Bork. Um, uh, He wrote a book about it. Uh, And when the Senate Judiciary Committee decided to actually hold a hearing on Professor Hill's um, allegations, uh, the people around her uh, recognized that she didn't have anyone uh, on her immediate team who had actually handled one of these contested Supreme Court nominations. And so they reached out to John uh, for help, and he reached out to me, and um, uh, we took a red eye to Washington uh, on a Monday and met our client on Tuesday, and by the end of the week, we were in the midst of, of the hearings. So tell me about that, because it's obviously, it's resurfaced as an issue lately. Right. What are your recollections of it, and particularly how she was treated by the committee? She, you know, she was uh, she was treated terribly, um, and... Uh, you know, there were no rules, right? It wasn't like going into court where you could uh, object, um, uh, where um, you could insist on a particular order of witnesses or, or the like. So, for example, um, we had been told that she would be the first witness, and uh, we were literally uh, in, in the kind of green room or whatever, the waiting room, uh, and they came in and said, no, Thomas wants to go first. You know, just totally things like that were happening all the time. And then the questions were um, uh, just uh, so out of bounds and uh, the the tone taken by uh, particularly the Republican members of the committee was so disrespectful. Um, and, uh, you know, and she held up really well. I mean, she was a very, very good witness and a credible witness. And what, what's interesting is uh, when she finally went on was in the afternoon and she did very well and uh, kind of uh, uh, had the story for the six o'clock newscasts. Um, 
And I think the Thomas team recognized that he needed to do something so that he could flip the story by the 10 o'clock news. So he called it a high-tech lynching. Yeah. So so all of a sudden, um, they decided that he could come on and they would have an evening session. Um, And what was (laughs) kind of interesting about that is I was in the hearing room. Most of our team had left to go to dinner. Uh, and then all of a sudden the doors open and the senators start coming in and in, in comes Boyden Gray with Clarence Thomas in tow. Uh, and this was before there were iPhones or anything like that. There was no way to get a hold of the team. So, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was there and, uh, they were having dinner. You know, um, I have to ask you, you're, you're a very busy woman, uh, now running the University of California system. So um, you may not have had a chance to watch the Kavanaugh hearings. Um, But what you're describing sounds a little bit like what we saw, which is that Christine Blasey Ford testified. And then um, all and she was very credible and impactful. And then all hell broke loose uh, in the afternoon. It, It was deja vu all over again. And uh, it, it was if um, uh, the Senate as an institution had not evolved at all in terms of uh, how you address um, serious allegations of sexual harassment. So when Anita Hill testified, this was in 1991, it was really the first time sexual harassment in the workplace uh, became kind of um, popularly known or discussed. Uh, and uh, as an as the aftermath, there were lots of changes in the law, lots of changes in workplace policies, training, and the like. So, uh, you know, things continued to evolve, um, uh, not not perfectly, as the Me Too movement right. demonstrates, but yes. n- m- nonetheless, uh, um, uh, places, you know, began to make, make some movement. The Senate <laughs> obviously made no movement, and... Uh, uh, and the Kavanaugh approach was almost identical to the Thomas approach. So you and I both know Vice President Biden well. Mm-hmm. Um, we both worked with him. <clears throat> you probably worked with him uh, in various ways during your public life. He was the chairman of the committee at the time. He's come under some criticism now that he's running for president, which, of course, is endemic to running for president for the way he handled uh, that hearing, how, how culpable was he for the the way in which the thing was conducted, and how fair are the criticisms of him? You know, I think he he himself has acknowledged that um, uh, 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 he 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 did not control the hearing the way a chairman can. Uh, I think he would do it very differently if the hearings were held today. Um, you know, I think we have to evaluate uh, the vice president in light of his uh, total record. Um, uh, you know, his. Were you at that time? Sorry to interrupt. Were you at that time? Were you? You, you said witnesses kept changing and uh, 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 the schedule kept changing and so on. Were you uh, aggravated with him then? Oh sure, <laughs> it was. I was like, "Who's running this railroad?" Uh-huh. Um, and uh, but uh, there were other members of the committee that could have spoken up as well and been more active. The Democrats were remarkably silent, and uh, you know, I can only speculate that uh, in part it, it was because uh, 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 Thomas was an African American. Right. Um, they didn't want to uh, uh, be seen as attacking him. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, that kind of vacuum allowed the Republicans on the committee to just uh, drive through their counter narrative and, you know, try to depict Professor Hill as, a, as not a credible witness. Yeah. Do you, do you think um, uh, Dr. Hill said that she was not satisfied with her conversation with the vice president? She just say, I blew it. I'm sorry. You know, um, uh, look, I don't know how to advise the vice president on this. I think uh, um, uh, I think he's tried to explain his role in the hearings. I think he's tried uh, in his own way to apologize. 
um, uh, I don't think his apology has gotten over the goal line yet. I loved how you handled that question. You're not, you're no longer a practicing politician, yeah. but that was a very deft way of, <laughs> of handling that question. So, um, speaking of being a practicing politician, you decided uh, uh, in in uh, 2000 to run for attorney general, or I guess 98, you 98, ran for attorney right. general right. Uh, of Arizona. That's a big decision to uh, yeah to. So, ru- to run uh, for public office and expose yourself. I mean, you know, everybody was always telling politicians what they should do and so on and so forth. When you put your name on a ballot, that's pretty raw stuff because people get to vote yay or nay on you and you have to have a pretty thick skin to do it, yeah. especially as a Democrat in Arizona. Yeah, so um, I'd been serving as the U.S. attorney for Arizona. Um, President Clinton had... Uh, nominated me and I was confirmed and served during his first term. And, um, uh, and I'd been in that role for, you know, four plus years and I was going to be turning 40 and the attorney generalship of Arizona was going to be an open seat. And, you know, I already always had this little, you know, kind of itch, I guess, that, uh, uh, I'd like to, um, run myself. And, uh, and I, kind of thought, you know, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And I'll always wonder, um, you know, the woulda, coulda, shoulda um, aspect. Um, uh, and yeah, and you're right. It's a, it's, it's a big jump. Um, Although um, I, I should say parenthetically, apropos to our previous discussion, when you were, you got a little taste of politics when you were appointed U.S. attorney because the Republicans in Congress held you up for a year. Yeah. Because of your... Involvement with Anita Hill. That's right. And um, fortunately, at the time, uh, you could go in as an acting. Uh, so I went in as an acting U.S. attorney. But uh, yeah, confirmation uh, went all the way to a cloture vote in the Senate for a U.S. attorney position <laughs> um, uh, because I had the fortune or misfortune of being uh, um, the first person associated with Anita Hill who had to come before the Senate Judiciary Committee for confirmation, and they and they had a memory of that. And yeah, so pay, uh, payback is hell. Huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but meanwhile, I was in the job, so right. it was like, okay, come on, guys. And the, and so that that made you an obvious candidate for Attorney General. Um, what was it like making the transition to? to campaigning, to raising money, to doing the things that politicians have to do. So it was interesting because um, the Democratic Party uh, at the time in Arizona was almost non-existent. Um, uh, so there was no kind of structure that I could feed into. Um, so uh, I, I had one campaign uh, worker um uh, a young man who'd worked with me at the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had this dumpy little office uh, uh, in a very seedy part of Phoenix. Um, you know, two card tables, some folding chairs, a couple of phone lines. And I would literally go in there and make cold calls to raise money, you know, five, six hours a day. Uh, and then we'd uh, try to set up house parties. And, and then I, you know, on the weekends, I'd go do uh, 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 parades and county fairs and all those kinds of things. And, you know, slowly but surely, you know, we built an organization uh, and were able to raise enough money in order to win the race. How, uh, talk to me a second about money and fundraising. Um, you know, the biggest lament you hear from members of Congress, for example, now, is how much of their time they have to spend raising money. And, um, you know, you're running for an office like attorney general, which is a kind of – it's a – It's a down-ballot race. Yeah. But, and, 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 but also it's a – you know, the authority you, – you, you're a law enforcement uh, person and you're asking people to – Support support you, but just generally because you ultimately ran for governor, how how much did you dislike having to sit on that phone and raise money all day? Oh, I don't think any candidate really enjoys that part of uh, the job. 
Um, but you got to do it. It's maybe uh, Chuck Schumer. I don't know. <laughs> maybe uh, uh, it's and, and you have to discipline yourself to do it. Um, I, I think most candidates procrastinate. They find something else they have to do, etc. Uh, but in the end, if you don't have the funds uh, uh, needed to support your 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 uh, your staff and the media buys and all the rest, yeah, you're toast. And then four years later, you ran for governor of Arizona. I I remember this very well because everybody was so excited that there was a viable candidate for (laughs) governor governor of Arizona. Mm -hmm. And you won. You won narrowly. You you ended up winning re-election by a landslide, which says something about about how you conducted yourself there. But – you know, you were very much someone who was, you, you know, you, you you had a lot of vetoes, but you also were someone who would negotiate across party lines. Um, there's this there's this big debate now about about compromise, about the kinds of things that one has to do in a democracy. That you in a state that was, you know, obviously you were a Democrat. You had to deal with Republicans in the legislature. Um, you must have some strong feelings about that, um, the sort of no compromise, run over the opposition kind of theory of government that has been exacerbated by these battles in Washington. Right. That's what we're seeing now. Yeah. But how does it work if you're not – you now I'm betraying my own view of this – if you're not willing to – if there's no give and take. You know, um, uh, when you're elected uh, a c- attorney general or governor, you're not the attorney general just for the Democrats. You're not the governor just for the Democrats. You're the governor of Arizona. And I think with those kind of roles comes the responsibility to uh, un- understand that there are uh, uh, people of different differing views, and to understand that um, if you're the executive and the legislative branch is under the control of the other party, if you want to get any part of your program adopted, you're going to have to give and go. You're going to have to um, uh, uh, give them something in order to get something that you you view as a, a larger good. And so I'll give you an example. Um, uh, I wanted... Uh, uh, free all-day kindergarten for every Arizona child. Um, uh, we had a burgeoning population of uh, families with young children. Um, uh, they mostly came from uh, uh, lower socioeconomic status. Um, you know, we wanted to catch them up by the time they got to first grade so that they were reading at grade level by third grade, which is one of the um, kind of standard metrics. Um, and the Republicans in the legislature were opposed to that, but they really wanted private prisons. Um, I don't like private prisons. I don't think prisons should be operated by for-profit industries. Um, but uh, this why was, do you feel that way? Um, uh, because uh, I I think that in, imprisonment is kind of a core. If you're going to do it, it's a kind of a core function of the state. Um, and uh, beyond that. Uh, the record of the private prison industry is not a good record. No, it's not. Um, and, and they didn't want to take the most difficult prisoners, right? They wanted to take the easier to um, uh, control uh, populations. This, and, is the, this is sort of the difficult thing about privatization in, in all realms of government, you know, including, you know, the d- debate about infrastructure. Well, yeah, Private investors are going to be eager to do infrastructure, but not in the places where you most need them in underserved areas and so on, because there's not money to be made there. Right, right. You're not going to be building a toll road somewhere. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that That's right. And uh, so um, uh, long story short, we uh, made uh, an agreement that they would fund all-day kindergarten and that for every public prison we built, um, there would also be uh, a private prison. Um, uh, not ideal, um, uh, but a, a compromise, a workable compromise, and and got us where we needed to go on, on all-day K. Um, 
Uh, and and that historically has been kind of how progress has been made uh, in American history. Um, what we're seeing now in Washington, D.C. is a, a total paralysis of that process. Uh, you know, we saw a little uh, – I mean, this has a been lot a long of it time in coming. the Obama administration. Yeah, when, when uh, President Obama took office, as you know, uh, I think one of the reasons – I mean, you were one of his early – endorsers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the things that probably attracted you to him was he was a believer in uh, trying to work across party lines, trying to rise above these partisan differences. It was really hard uh, when we got there, I think in part because Senator McConnell, who was there then as he is now, made a strategic decision that, you know what, we're not going to give him anything because Otherwise, that validates his message that, you know, that that he could somehow harmonize everything. Right. I think it wasn't it McConnell who said that their chief priority was to make sure he didn't get a second term. Yes. And I, I really thought that was an outrageous comment. Like, uh, uh, you're a United States Senate and your chief um, priority is going to be to try to defeat the incumbent president. Yeah. Uh, uh, meanwhile, the country was teetering on the verge of a depression, and uh, we had all of these large looming issues, uh, some of which, uh, like immigration, still loom in our country. Um, uh, it, 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 it just, uh, uh, you know, it, it's just not the way it ought to be in my, well, you know, in every, my view of government. Every action right? creates a reaction, and that's why you have this debate within the Democratic Party of people who say, you know what, they're not going to work with us. Right. So let's, why work with them? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that seems like a uh, that seems like we're spiraling into a kind of really really treacherous place. We're it, you know we're in a place now where uh, uh, everyone has retreated to their corner of the ring. And there's and there's um, no po positive engagement. There's engagement, but yes. uh, but mainly for point scoring purposes. Yeah, yeah. And and so uh, meanwhile, um, uh, we lack a coherent immigration policy. Uh, we lack a coherent uh, climate policy. Uh, we're not dealing with these issues of in income inequality, which underscore so many other issues in our country. These are big kind of extant risks to to the United States. And right. you, you rarely hear uh, about them. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, let's talk about immigration uh, for a second. And, and I want to reserve uh, a bunch of time to talk about your tenure as, uh, at uh, the Department of Homeland Security and, and the book that you've just written about where you think we need to go. Um, but immigration is something you've been dealing with long before you ever got to Washington. You were a border state governor. And, you know, you, you were viewed as, um, uh, as relatively tough on the issue. You, you spoke often about the need to secure the border. Um, you... Uh, you know, there were various debates, including about f fencing along the border, uh, which you ultimately compromised on. Um, tell me, uh, tell me what what you see today uh, relative to immigration, and um, you know, which has become a real f kind of f flare point in our politics part because the president has made it such. Right. It's been a real theme of the Trump presidency. And um, the wall has become uh, kind of the, 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 the picture he's painting. Um, and I'll just say this, David, a wall is a symbol. It's not a strategy. Um, the um, border is a zone. Uh, it's 1,940 miles, some of it's private land, some of it's public land, some of it's sovereign Indian nation land. Um, uh, it is dotted by ports of entry through which thousands of trucks and cars travel every day. Uh, Mexico's our third leading trade partner. Uh, it's responsible for hundreds of thousands of jobs in the United States. Um, and so to me, um, a real strategy requires uh, 
having 21st century ports with the best technology properly staffed um, to facilitate that lawful traffic flow. Um, and then between the ports of entry, uh, a combination of manpower, technology, ground sensors, tunnel detection equipment, air cover, drones, um, to enable you to find um, those who are crossing illegally. Um, that's that's a, a strategy, and that's really the strategy we used uh, during the Obama administration, and uh, we drove illegal migration down to 40-year-plus lows. Um, uh, in the current administration, uh, now despite the rhetoric and uh, the kind of uh, shutting down the government over funding for the wall, et cetera, um, you're actually seeing the numbers come back up again. So whatever they're doing, uh, it's certainly not having the effect of deterring any illegal migration, and uh, uh, it's not helping solve the problem. A couple of things. You uh, you were one of the, I said you were tough as a governor. You had, <laughs> excuse me, a concern about violence uh, uh, in communities along the border. Mm -hmm. That is what the pre that is the specter that the president has raised that, you know, violent immigrants are crossing the border, bands of marauding uh, immigrants and so on. What is the what is the truth of that and how concerned should people be? So when uh, in the early 2000s and and this is when I was attorney general and governor, uh, by then the federal government had put uh, something called Operation Gatekeeper in place in San Diego, Tawana. And they had put something called Operation Hold the Line in uh, the El Paso, Juarez area. Uh, and those two uh, operations had the function of uh, uh, driving funneling illegal migration, funneling it right into what's called the Tucson sector, right into Arizona, so that um, in 2003, I think it was, over half the Border Patrol apprehensions in, in the country were in that one sector. It really was overrun. It was not under control. Um, under the Obama ad administration and, and building on some of the work that had been done by President uh, Bush's administration, we actually shut down that Tucson sector and um, we had it under uh, uh, control so that the same dynamics um, uh, didn't, didn't apply. Mm -hmm. And uh, we completed um, uh, all but about 50 miles of uh, structure, wall, or fencing uh, that had been identified by um, the experts as to what was necessary uh, along the border. Uh, that's a, there's a big difference between that and saying you've got to build a 1,940-mile wall. And I used to say as governor, you know, show me a 10-foot wall and I'll show you an 11-foot ladder. Yes. Uh, and and uh, so, again, the notion that uh, a single physical structure is is uh, sufficient. It just it does doesn't match with how the border works. Yeah. Um, do you think Democrats make a mistake though? Uh, you know, Speaker Pelosi called the the wall Im immoral. Um, that got picked up. I think she was speaking about the symbolic. Yeah. Uh, the symbolic wall that you're talking about, um, but do, do Democrats run the risk here of of being positioned by the president as looking insufficiently um, strong on this issue? I, I you know, I, I worry about that. Um, you know, I I think the Democratic message should be. We want border enforcement too, but it needs to be smart and it needs to uh, um, uh, um, match the, the need for the lawful traffic and, and trade to be able to traverse through, through the ports uh, with our need to uh, make sure that illegal crossings are kept to a minimum uh, and – uh, there are strategies that have been demonstrated to work. Those are the strategies that ought to be funded, uh, not not a wall. We should point out that one of the elements of the uh, 
Obama program that you helped administer at DHS, and ICE worked uh, was under your aegis, was a, a pretty aggressive deportation program for people in this country. It, it's controversial among uh, some Democrats, uh, but you substantially increased the number of people who you deported. You prioritized them differently. We Right. We had uh, real priorities. So, you know, um, it was those who had committed uh, serious felonies while in the country, uh, those who were known gang members or security risks, and those we apprehended right at the border. We actually put them into deportation proceedings. Um, and those had the, you know, those priorities had the effect of driving the numbers up. Uh, and, you know, it was controversial. And I remember when the president was called a deporter in chief. And uh, I don't I don't think he appreciated that comment. But I also think that comment overlooked, well, who is it that's being deported? Uh, and uh, overlooked that under the president, we did DACA, Deferred Action for, mm-hmm. for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, we stopped the practice of workplace raids. Uh, you know, we did other things to try to uh, make the administration of the immigration law better and uh, more fair while advocating for immigration reform. What do you think about those who advocate uh, the uh, uh, dismantlement of ICE? Yeah, I think that's a mistake. Um, uh ICE is it's a law enforcement organization like any law enforcement organization. Um, it needs uh, priorities on how it's going to expend its resources. It needs direction. Um, I think uh, one of the differences between the Obama administration and the Trump administration is uh, that in point of fact that they have um, – uh, kind of erased any of those priorities. Uh, so uh, any anybody in the country illegally is fair game, regardless of how long they've been here, the community ties they've established, um, uh, you know, and um, uh, what their real risk is to the safety of, of Americans. What about the issue of refugees, which seems to be, as you point out, the flow of uh – of immigrants from Mexico coming is actually is has been the other way. Yeah. But uh, but you have this you have this steady flow of refugees from Central America. Um, how should that be dealt with? We've seen the family separations. Yeah. So um, uh, I you know I think we would be much better advised to try to deal with that at the source um, and try to uh, Meaning in the countries in of the co- origin. In, in Guatemala, Honduras, mm-hmm. El Salvador, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, to fund gang uh, violence prevention programs, to support uh, civil institutions like judiciary, like uh, the law enforcement functions in those countries. Um, and it, that's not pure idealism. Uh, uh, when Colombia was a narco state, uh, the United States had something called Plan Colombia, uh, and over several years, investing resources and working with Colombians who didn't want to live in narco in a narco state, uh, they actually turned things around so that now Colombia is a tourist destination. Um, you know, people don't leave their homelands and make that treacherous journey to the United States with, without being motivated by a sense of desperation for their lives and the lives of their children. And I think we have to understand that. And I think we can and we would be better advised to invest in efforts at the source of the migration as opposed to building a wall at the output of it. You're probably aware that the president has suggested that he – on the family separation, he was just – uh, following on a policy that was a policy of the Obama administration. Yeah, that that's just not right. Um, uh, there were times when children were separated from the adults they were traveling with. It was when we had indications that um, uh, they were actually being trafficked uh, or they were physically at, at risk from the adults they were traveling with. But there was certainly no, nothing that approached the policy and nothing that approached the zero tolerance uh, policy that the Trump administration pursued. And uh, really treating uh, – 
criminalizing every border crossing. Yeah, so let's let's uh, uh, back up the bus and and just remind people that um, uh, um, deportation is is a civil proceeding. Um, prosecution is a criminal proceeding. And when the attorney general announced zero tolerance, he was saying anybody caught crossing illegally would be prosecuted, meaning they were put under the criminal jurisdiction of the United States. And that required then that children be separated from uh, their parents. And meanwhile, all those law enforcement resources, the assistant U.S. attorneys, the um, investigators, the courtrooms, et cetera, along the border are filled with prosecuting what at most are federal misdemeanors. Uh, just a, a real mistaken allocation of, of law enforcement along the border. I just want to touch briefly on what you you're doing now mm-hmm. uh, as as president of the University of California, which, as you point out, has a much three times the budget that you had when you were uh, governor governor yeah. Yeah. of Arizona, and has its own, uh, I'm sure, daily complexities. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. But one of them that I'm interested in is this whole issue of free expression and free speech. It's something that we deal with at the Institute of Politics um, and, you know, the University of Chicago, you, you've written about this, is, has been a fulcrum of this debate. Uh, but every academic institution is dealing with it. And I, I'm, I know you've written on this uh, subject, but um, how, how, do you, how do you deal with it? And how do you, you know, my, just to set it up for you, my view Van Jones, who you probably know, was mm-hmm. was at our place uh, shortly after Corey Lewandowski had been there following the 19, 2016 election. And there was a protest when Corey came, which is part of democracy, is protest. But the, the event went on. Student asked Van about this a week later, and Van said, you know, our job is to keep you safe from physical harm. It's not to keep you safe from ideas you dislike or may even hate. Um you know, our job is to make you strong and resilient so you can contend with these ideas. And, you know, this is the gym. This is where you learn how to contend with these ideas. I sort of subscribe to that. And I, I suspect you do too. But how do you do that and still respect uh, that in a diverse society and particularly with more diverse student bodies, there are, uh, there are lines somewhere that one has to respect uh, that goes beyond what is what is tolerable. Well, you know, uh, I think um, speech is speech, um, and um, uh, when f- you know when there's something that arises to a risk to physical safety, uh, then I think uh, uh, a university can and should act. But short of that, um, I think the response to speech is more speech. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the role of educational institutions, much as you said, is to equip students um, with the tools they need to be able to engage um, and to respond um, uh, and to be resilient. Um, I think we have to recognize that uh, students who are from uh, groups that are under attack by particular speakers, um, uh, that um, they, they are under attack and uh, um, reach out to them and provide them uh, greater support, um, uh, uh, gr- uh, greater tools with which to mm-hmm. I- engage with that. Um, but uh, I by no means think that the role of a university is to uh, make students uh, – um, safe from ideas. As I mean, one of the things that plagues speech. us as a society right now is that we we can create these virtual reality silos in which our views are always affirmed. Uh, Echo chambers. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and I think it's one of the reasons why we talk past uh, we talk past each other. It's also true. I think you you know these kids say, well, you're giving people a position of power when they come. You know, you're you're endorsing them. 
my view is that if if they're willing to come and submit themselves to questions, then the power actually shifts to these young people who are very capable, and I've seen it time and again, of challenging views that they don't agree with in ways that are really provocative and interesting. Right. And and the other way is when you have a speaker who's just deliberately uh, serving as a provocateur, isn't, isn't really trying to contribute to uh, an academic debate or anything of that sort, but is, 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 is really there to provoke and to anger. Um, another way of dealing with them is just not to go, and right. not, not to provide them with that um, uh, right. kind of a... And audience. there are speakers who, who do that and provide what I said, no, no nutritional content. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's up to the institutions to, and, the, and the inviting parties to decide that. And it's kind of the, what it was it Justice Stewart who said about pornography, I'll know it when I see it. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. is an element of that. Um, two quick political questions, and then I want to get back to um, security. Um, one is, why, why, what did cause you to endorse Barack Obama in 2007? Because it was a hard thing. You know, you, you were a prominent female uh, executive politician in the country. Hillary Clinton was running to, and she would have been the first female president. There must have been enormous pressure on you, uh, not to mention that you were appointed by President Clinton in the first place. There must have been enormous pressure on you to at least stay out of it. Um, you know, I first met um, Obama uh, at the 2004 um, National Convention in Boston. When That's he gave where a he really keynote speech. Yeah. He gave the keynote. He lit the place up. And the the one thing I'm grateful for is that I was the speaker right in front of him. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, being right after him that would have been, been a losing awful. spot. Yeah. Oh my lord! Um, uh, but uh, uh, he reached out, and uh, I remember um, uh, meeting him for what was supposed to be a you know a thirty minute breakfast in in Washington, um, and it stretched to over an hour. And um, I just uh, just something clicked that um, the way he thought about government and politics uh, was the way I thought about it, and and then he made every effort to to stay in touch and. Uh, um, uh, to show that I would be, you know, part of his team, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, so when it came time to making a, a an endorsement, it was a pretty easy choice. It was it was a big boon for him to get your endorsement. Then I remember how excited people were. <laughs> uh, how excited people were to have it. Um, are you out of the endorsement business now that you're in your current role? Pretty much, yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> good for you. Uh, what about Arizona? Is You know, there's a lot of talk about Arizona. Is Arizona a, blue, a, a purple state now? Is Arizona in play? Um, what, what's your sense of that? Last time, Hillary Clinton invested a lot of resources in Arizona, more than she invested in Michigan. Turned out to be a miscalculation. Yeah. Is, is it fool's gold or is it real? You know, I I think uh, it can be real. Uh, uh, Trump carried Arizona by three, three and a half points. So it wasn't an overwhelming uh, victory. Uh, in 18, uh, you saw a Democrat take um, the secretary of state position, which is we don't have a lieutenant governor there. Mm -hmm. So that's the second in charge, the superintendent of schools. We... Uh, took the U.S. Senate seat that was vacated by Jeff Flake. Kirsten Sinema uh, won that race. Uh, we flipped a House seat. Um, uh, so uh, um, it's it's definitely in play. Um, uh, I will say that it it will be largely dependent on who the Democrats nominate. Mm -hmm. um, uh, makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, I think that. Um, uh, Arizonans will favor, um, if if I can use kind of the traditional spectrum, um, uh, uh, someone who is um, viewed as perhaps more moderate um, uh, than far left. Uh, but uh, I, I think the state a, can, uh, can be in play. Someone 
you might say in the Napolitano tradition. Huh? <laughs> you can't say it. I it can't would be, say it. But I can say it. So uh, you, you, you have this new book called How Safe Are We? And so I guess the appropriate question is, how safe are we? <laughs> and how have things uh, changed since you, uh, you took over uh, in 2009 when the, the, there was this, you know, we, we were still dealing with, uh, in a very real way, this, the threat of, of terrorism. Yeah. Um, I think in some areas we are uh, certainly safer than we were before 9-11. For example, it's uh, uh, virtually impossible to um, think that a plot similar to what we saw in 9-11, where people take over commercial aircraft and weaponize them and fly them into buildings. That really can't happen anymore. Um, uh, but one of the reasons I wrote the book um, was to argue that risks to our homeland security continue to evolve. And, and if we kind of um, misallocate, misjudge what risks are real versus those that are kind of theater, um, we, in, in essence, put the country in, in greater danger. So, And you, you, you make very clear that uh, the action is shifting to cyber right. in a big way. It's shifted to, to cyber. It's shifted to uh, um, the risks associated with global warming uh, and the the increasing incidence of mass gun violence. Um, uh, the border, uh, in contrast, is not a, a safety risk to Americans. It's a zone to be managed. It's a zone to be uh, uh, secure, but it, it, not, it is not in and of itself a safety risk. So talk about uh, these, these individual issues, uh, cyber. Mm -hmm. um, talk, I, I think that you know, one of the things that we deal with is that technology is churning at such a rapid rate that's hard to get your arms around all the impacts of it. But the job of certainly uh, your old department and government has to be to be up to date on these risks and stay one step ahead of them. Uh, what are the risks and are we staying one step ahead of them? So the risks take many forms. It, uh, they can uh, be uh, hacks. They can be the theft of personal information. They can be denial of service attacks. We actually shut down a, uh, an electrical system or a water system or a telecommunication system. Um, and how hardened and, are we to that? You know, not hard enough. And uh, we know that – and a lot of our nation's critical infrastructure is in private hands. And so uh, this is something where uh, – um, uh, the public and private sectors are going to have to uh, work together. Um, you know, I think there needs to be uh, much stronger kind of national standards that owners and operators of critical infrastructure need to adhere to. They shouldn't be voluntary um, as they are now. Uh, and, you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, we, we have to continue to anticipate that our foreign adversaries, I'm speaking of Russia, are going to continue to attack our democracy itself uh, 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 through the tools they have on in the cyber world. Do you think, you know, it's, it's hard to tell from the outside because the president has been steadfast in denying that this is real and that this is a threat, but then you hear from the director of uh, National intelligence and the director of the FBI and 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 others, uh, including Homeland Security. Yes, it's this is real, and they're still doing it. And do you have confidence that enough is being done to combat that? No. Um, and um, it was interesting. So former Secretary Nielsen. Um, gave a state of Homeland Security speech not too long before she resigned. Um, and she uh, listed cyber as kind of the 
top risk. It's an extraordinarily complicated topic because the technology continually changes. You've got public and private. You've got any number of federal agencies who have some jurisdiction in the cyber arena. So just kind of organizing them and clarifying their roles and responsibilities is kind of task number one. And when you think about our election system, elections are managed by local officials, local county uh, recorders and and the like. Um, And there are no national standards that they uh, have to adhere to. Ironically, it may also have been what saved us from uh, having the actual vote totals hacked because you had 50 individual systems and not one system that was uh, easily breachable. That's right. Um, uh, uh, but uh, not, nonetheless, um, there uh, is enough, I think, evidence. And I think that it's it's clear from the Mueller report. The Russians were all over our 2016 election. Mm-hmm. And there's no indication that they've stopped. Uh, uh, Trump can't simply say to Putin, uh, stop it, and ass- assume that uh, he will. And uh, Although it would um, be good if he did say that. Uh, it would be, That would be a start, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and, you know, it's the kind of thing where you really need presidential leadership. Uh, if you're going to bring all these disparate parties uh, uh, to the table and uh, hammer things out, uh, you, you really need leadership. He's not had executive. a National Security Council meeting that he's In led. months. On, on on anything, but but on this, uh, apparently never. Yeah, uh, and and that's amazing to me. Um, uh, but but the whole national security decision making apparatus seems to have kind of dissolved uh, in the Trump administration, and that's uh, that's dangerous too. Because um, as you know from from your time at the White House, things are going on all the time. All the time, and. Uh, they're not things easily susceptible to just doing a, a gut response. They they need you know thought, consideration, and um, evaluation. Uh, you mentioned climate as a as a as a threat. Yeah. As a security threat, I, explain that. So uh, in, in a couple of ways. First of all. Uh, climate is changing migration patterns around the world, and we need to be thinking more globally about that. We're seeing a really a massive movement of people from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere, by way of example. Um, there are areas of the world where uh, climate has already caused um, massive uh, economic uh, loss, um, for example, um, drought in uh, in Syria, in Yemen, uh, uh, has killed the local agricultural economy. Uh, means you got lots of young men roaming around, no work, no hope, uh, ripe for terrorist recruitment, mm-hmm. political unrest. Um, so that's one in area. In fact, of the Pentagon risk. has consistently named this as one of the, their national security. Right, and correctly concerns. so. Um, and then from a homeland security perspective, um, uh, if one of the functions of homeland security is to keep people safe, well, uh, we have lost more lives due to extreme weather events traceable to global warming than, than we have to terrorist events in, in the last years. Uh, we're seeing more landfall hurricanes. We had uh, uh, four in uh, 2017 alone, um, more tornadoes, a greater intensity of tornadoes, drought in the West, uh, drying out the forests, leading to massive wildfires with uh, resulting loss of life well. and loss of property. Uh, and so we need to be focused not only on doing our part to reduce the rate of global warming, um, but also adaptation to the global warming we're already experiencing. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the, this epidemic of mass shootings and uh, gun crimes generally. You know, you uh, you, you issued a report, uh, or your agency did on uh, on extremism on right on the right, mm-hmm. and uh, you took some heat for it at the time, but. That is coming into sharper focus now, isn't it? Yeah, the re- it turns out the report was very prescient. Uh, uh, we were criticized for the report because um, there was uh, some language in a footnote that um, 
returning veterans were particularly susceptible. Uh, and the veterans community got uh, very angry about, about that. And, and it was not meant to denigrate all veterans or the military or anything It's really of that meant sort. as a warning probably in some ways to veterans yeah, as well. Exactly. Um, uh, and, and really to the to Pentagon to think mm-hmm. about how, um, uh, how they handle when people leave the service. Um, but nonetheless, as, as you know, it, it caused a, a bit of a political storm. Yeah, yeah. Well— uh, I have to say, you are a great public servant. It was a privilege to work with you. You continue to be a great public servant. You've had many different incarnations in public, <laughs> in public life, but uh, you've written an, an important book here, How Safe Are We? And uh, I hope that people in positions of responsibility read it. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And a special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.